Hello everyone, I'm Nate Truex and you're listening to the Crockcast Podcast. Hello everyone, welcome to the Crockcast Podcast. I'm your host Nate and today I'm joined by uh, James Nifong. James, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, pleasure to be on the show here. No, it's my pleasure. Uh, so James, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what your career is, what you've done with reptiles and all that? Yeah, sure. So I am a uh, research ecologist, um, primarily studying American alligators, as well as other uh, sort of coastal, mainly coastal and aquatic organisms. Um, But I use American alligators as a focal species to understand the ecology and interactions of top predators and how that applies to conservation as well as management in, like I said, mainly coastal ecosystems, but I do work in rivers and lakes and other aquatic ecosystems as well. Um, I started uh, my sort of research with reptiles and amphibians in undergraduate, uh, working for the Museum of Natural History at the University of Florida. And it sort of just blossomed into, uh, you know, research with alligators and, you know, then I eventually went and got my PhD doing that uh, and, you know, had a couple of jobs uh, in the field um, subsequent to the PhD. So, yeah, uh, that's kind of a summation of it. Yeah. So uh, where is it that you uh, do your research at? Uh, mainly in Georgia and Florida uh, has been the main areas that I've studied. I've also gone down to South America, worked with Black Cayman, um, and you know before I was doing my dissertation research with alligators, I worked in Central America, in Honduras, Costa Rica, um, on broader reptile and amphibian uh, studies, you know, biodiversity, you know, assessments and things. Um, but, you know, it's, it's also I've kind of broadly applied some of my research um, and taken data sets from more than just uh populations that I've studied. So we've combined data sets, uh, you know, from all over the U.S. Um, in terms of alligators and, you know, use that to better understand whatever questions we were trying to get at. Um, so it's not only just where I've gone out in the field and caught them, but, you know, I'm very open to collaborations with other researchers. So, you know, we combine data and just try to you know, do the best we can with, with, you know, whatever uh, materials we have. So, um, because a lot of times, you know, a lot of these studies we do are very limited in scope and funding. Um, So, you know, to answer broader questions, uh, you know, with bigger data sets, you got to combine, you know, research um, efforts. And and that's, I've been successful in doing that as well. So, yeah. So, uh, you want to talk about your research with uh, Black Cayman since, I haven't really talked about those on the show before. Um, it was a uh, invitation I got from another uh, collaborator of mine, Adam Rosenblatt. Uh, he was uh, looking at 
dietary interactions. So we're stomach pumping black caiman and as well attaching radio transmitters um, to do some tracking. I was lucky enough to get invited and I had a lot of experience stomach pumping alligators. So he kind of wanted my insight and help to, you know, make sure, you know, the methods were, were being done correctly, things like that. Um, I only got to go down for like a week, but it was, it was amazing. I mean, the, the black caiman are, they're just beasts. Um, you know, compared to catching alligators, it's, it's a totally different world uh, down in, in, in Guyana. And we went during the dry season. So, you know, you're kind of stuck in these rivers, you know, as it's all dried down. And then during the flood season, so, you know, you barely find them because it's such a expanse, uh, the water is. And, you know, you go on these rickety little canoes and, uh, you know, that have steel plates on the front of them. And the locals have kind of figured out the best way to, to get these uh, animals. So, uh, you know, they're really, really hardy, really tough animals um, compared to alligators. You know, alligators just like give up, you know, caiman, no. Uh, black caiman, uh, you'll be fighting them for you know thirty minutes just to get them get them on shore. Uh, so <laughs> it's it's pretty interesting. But you know, like I said, I think they published. Uh, Adam Rosenblatt has published some of that research um, already. I wasn't the main investigator on it, um, so I'm not sure as to all of his findings. Um, but I know he did some diet stuff and some radio telemetry. Um, that may still be ongoing partly, or at least the, the analysis of the data and the um, findings are still, you know, to come, you know, basically. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this PhD project you're working on right now, your dissertation project, uh, what are you looking at in American Alligators? So I got my PhD back in 2014. So okay. that was, yeah, that's finished. Um, with American alligators, I mainly focused on better understanding the ecology and behavior associated with the use of marine habitats by American alligators. So for a long time, you know, it was sort of anecdotally known that alligators use marine habitats, you know, you know, salty water, you know, more than, you know, 10, 15 parts per thousand salt water, you know, we're talking actual full strength seawater, you know, uh, in a lot of these cases. And uh, I was approached by my future uh, PhD committee uh, chair, and this is when I was an undergrad, and uh, he'd known I'd been working on pythons in Florida and and had sort of some drive to do research, you know? And he said, hey, you know, I do all this research out in salt marshes in Georgia, and I always see alligators out there, but there's nothing really in the research, uh, you know, literature uh, about alligators using saltwater habitats. And we know they don't have salt glands, so, you know, what are they doing? You know, that, that was the kind of start of it. Um, so I started on Saplow Island, Georgia. It's a really cool barrier island off the coast of Georgia there. 
And I just started, you know, going out there, catching animals, uh, doing population counts, seeing what areas they were using. Uh, then I added on looking at stomach contents. So seeing what they were eating, combine that with stable isotope analysis to get a better idea of how much of their diet was actually coming from saltwater um, ecosystems versus freshwater. And then we also uh, tracked animals with GPS uh, transmitters uh, to see the frequency of the habitat used, see how far they went out into the marine habitat. Because, you know, what we found is, you know, they don't have salt glands. So it's uh, really a, almost like a weekly thing. You know, they'll, they'll go out to the, the salt water, they'll gorge themselves on blue crabs, and, you know, small fish and, and other critters and then they come back to these little freshwater refugia you know basically small ponds and little wetlands on in barrier island systems and they do this constantly just back and forth back and forth and um so that was that was the main drive for the research and a lot of the you know descriptive stuff that i was doing um but then as well uh, in terms of the ecology, uh, I wanted to know, you know, there's all these other organisms out in the salt marsh that are really influential within the food web. Uh, one of those being the blue crab. Uh, it's actually a very important predator for other organisms that have big effects. So these snails and, and rib mussels and things that are very important in the food web there. So uh, I took that into an uh, experimental setting, and we actually had these big mesocosms um, where we set up to look at the interactions between alligators, blue crabs, and um, lower trophic levels in the salt marsh. And what we found is pretty cool that, you know, <laughs> well, first of all, alligators love to eat blue crabs. They love crunchy, salty, you know, stuff. Um, but then on top of that, they scare the shit out of blue crabs. So, you know, I did these experiments where, you know, the alligators, they, they couldn't eat the blue crabs, but they were present, you know, they had their mouth taped shut, in these big, huge mesocosms. And then in the presence of alligators, the blue crabs would just stop eating. And, you know, the other animals would, would survive at a higher rate, um, which has cascading effects in, in you know, over long term and things. So, um, this is one of the first studies. Like we actually experimentally showed that a crocodilian, um, this being the alligator, could influence the behavior of other animals. Um, you know, just through their presence. Uh, so that that I thought that was pretty cool. Um, it was pretty interesting. But yeah, uh, for the uninitiated, so me, uh, what is a <laughs> mesocosm? Um, that's just like a, uh, in this case, they were seven meter wide, uh, fish tanks, basically, uh, okay. they're big fiberglass pools. Um, so mesocosm is just, you know, a smaller, uh, version of, or simpler and smaller version of the habitat that they were in. Gotcha. Right. So, yeah, so we had these big seven meter wide swimming pools basically um and they had you know marsh grass they had 
snails, they had rib mussels, they had some refuge, and then they had blue crabs and alligators. And so we, you know, not, you know, made these things where it's a, a simplified kind of uh, representation of the salt marsh. Um, but it's something you could study, you know, because out in the field, you just couldn't, you couldn't do that. Um, couldn't be putting big fences out in salt marsh and keeping yeah. alligators inside of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just, just, just wouldn't work very well. Um, but that's a problem you have with studying, you know, big, you know, predators that, that move around a lot and, and they're hard to handle. And well, how do we understand what's going on out in nature other than, you know, simplifying it a little bit and, and bringing it in and experimentally testing some of this stuff. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, you mentioned earlier, you did uh, look at stabilized toast to see what percentage of uh, alligator coastal alligator populations diet is uh, marine animals. Yeah. Uh, what, what was that percentage? Um, it varied. Um, you know, some of the, so it varied by size and by sex and by uh, habitat as well, or location, um, more location. Because I not only looked at it in Georgia, I looked at it in uh, northern Florida, I looked at it in Cape Canaveral down in um, sort of mid uh, Florida, um, and we looked at it as a broader um, populations as well is that you know as the alligators increase in size the percentage of the diet that's coming from marine habitats as well um, now and that went up to like I think it's like 70 80 percent of their diet through you know was inferred as being from marine habitats um, and there's always, you know, on those estimates, right? Because it's not an exact science, um, but it, it's pretty good. Uh, so, you know, the idea there being that, uh, you know, they get larger, they can stay out in the salt water for longer periods of time. Uh, they do venture further, usually, um, than you know, a, a juvenile, a smaller um, individual, and as well, they're, they can take different types of prey, and they may specialize on some, you know, marine prey, you know, like a blue crab or, or, you know, baby sharks or um, things like that, because we also identified, you know, they ate, you know, all kinds of stuff, um, but I was the first one to publish that they ate um, like four species of sharks and rays. Um, as well as sea turtles, um, had them recording eating sea turtles. We had um, you know, horseshoe crabs, crabs, shrimp, small fish, um, birds. Uh, yeah, I mean, you name it, they were eating it, you know, out from the salt water. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and then there were some also some variations, you know, not significantly different stuff through by sex. And um, then the populations varied just depended where you were at you know yeah yeah so, so um what was the largest uh prey item you noticed uh these alligators taking at least on a routine basis um routine basis i would say small mammals like raccoons um you know otter raccoon uh they they 
even like the sharks and things, you know, they would take, they would, they would be small. They, they wouldn't be like, you know, they're not eating an eight foot, you know, freaking hammerhead or something, <laughs> you know, they're, they're attacking a full grown bull shark. <laughs> right. They're, they're eating the babies, you know, that, that are, you know, nurse sharks and, and bonnet heads and smaller and rays and things like that. Um, and it's actually really surprising. Even these big alligators, like a eight, 10 foot alligator, you know, we would find thousands of like small minnows and grass shrimp in their stomach. And I've seen the feeding behavior. It's really cool. Um, they kind of act like a baleen whale well, where they'll like, they'll go into a big school of uh, shrimp or fish and like snap their jaws. Right. Yeah. And then pop their head up and push all the water out and then swallow whatever's left. Huh. You know, so, so they're kind of like, and they'll have thousands of little teeny grass shrimp, you know, literally sat there and counted thousands in one stomach. And it's like, how does this, you know, eight, 10 foot alligator eating little teeny, <laughs> little teeny shrimp, you know, you, you think they're taking big, you know, like a deer or like a, you know, or something like that. But um, your mind goes to like those documentaries of Nile Crocs in the Mar River or something like that. Yeah, yeah, but that's just it's not sustainable. You know, they'll get something like that every once in a while. You know, and that'll keep them fed for a while. But um, on a daily basis, you know, they're taking these smaller prey items, um, and that 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 that's been shown, you know, across the board. But um, yeah, yeah, it's pretty interesting. So, what was the largest uh, thing you ever saw one of them take? Then, um, I mean, I did see we had a you know white-tailed deer. Um, yeah, I didn't see it taken, but I had evidence of it um, as well. That's probably the biggest. I mean, yeah, other alligators. Um, you know, we had some cannibalism, of course. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, you know, the, the sea turtle, you know, that's, that, my friend saw, he had evidence of them dragging sea turtles, you know, on the beach. Um, he's seen that before, and that was, that's pretty interesting. I don't know, like uh, up on um, Wausau Island uh, in Georgia. So, you know, it's pretty, pretty cool. Um, yeah, but I'd say, yeah, the, like the biggest just animal in general something like a white-tailed deer or a hog um had some evidence of them eating hogs um which you know are abundant as well in those environments so salt marshes yeah 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 so that whole uh baleen feeding behavior <laughs> yeah reminds me a little bit of uh some well what speculated was behavior for some several extinct uh, crocodilians i think it's like mm -hmm. marsugus or something like that yeah, there were there were a couple of like the pancake yeah. uh, mouth uh, crocodilian. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a good feeding technique. I mean, because you get into these schools of you know shrimp and, and small fish, and same thing with the uh, silver side uh, minnows. Uh, these little tiny you know one two inch minnows, and they just occur in thousands and thousands, and, and you know you can't throw a rock without hitting one if you were in that environment so you know that's a lot of protein you know to miss out on if you're not using that technique you're trying to catch that food 
and they're very opportunistic you know just like every every animal is pretty much every predator uh so they're not going to miss out on a highly nutritious food source yeah. you know they'll, they'll figure out you know how to do it yeah <laughs> so yeah. the calories there yeah. you're going to try and get it yeah yeah no definitely definitely uh so with the uh, blue crabs you, you said they they love blue crabs uh so like how much of their diet would you say uh depending on you know individuals but like kind of average how much yeah. of their diet is blue crab um i would have to look back at the data i think it was something like you know occurrence wise i think it was somewhere around like 40 percent of individuals or something like that um you know we're, we're eating you know blue crabs i mean you would find it all the time it was not only blue crabs there were also these little mud crabs and fiddler crabs and other um crustaceans out there uh they were eating shrimp too you know so uh and then in the freshwater you know they're eating crayfish you know so same very similar you know animal their signatures show up different though and that's what i was able to differentiate between you know a lot of that stuff um I would have to look back at the data for an exact number though. Yeah, I don't want to gotcha. like yeah. put my foot foot in my mouth. It's been a while since I've looked at that data set. So Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. So you mentioned in your undergrad you were doing uh, some work with uh, Burmese pythons. You want to talk about that yep. at all? Yeah, sure. Um and I actually subsequently for a position uh recently was working with them as well. Um so okay. uh you know i'll go back to you know when we first started working with them this was back in 2005 2006 and this was really when they first started you know finding a lot of them um or a decent number of them so the i was a technician for the herpetology department at the florida museum of natural history and you know as a sort of side project or, or as my main project that i was working on every one of the pythons that would get captured or get mowed over or hit on the road down here in south florida uh, they would send up to the museum and we would do a body condition assessment so we would dissect them um you know i would look at stomach contents uh and that's when the first you know the first studies you know, we're, we're done on these guys as they were getting sent up. So um, I think the biggest one we had back then was like 17 feet. Um, you know, I pu we published a couple papers on um, clutch size as well as um, the evidence of them eating deer um, down in South Florida. Um, and you know, did some of the first diet studies that were that were done on them. I mean, since then there's been tons, right? Because yeah. there, there's the Python eradication programs. Um, there's just other individuals, um, you know, at the University of Florida and elsewhere looking at diet and, and other aspects, genetics, um, you know, a bunch of different kind of areas of study. Um, but later when I worked uh, for, the, for the University of Florida again, um, here in South Florida, uh, we were analyzing the data from the capture programs. Um, so we were trying to see if there were better times to go searching for them, better techniques, uh, better areas of 
you know, catch per unit effort sort of, you know, are we getting uh, good at it? <laughs> are we getting better through time at finding these snakes? Um, you know, those, there were some questions we were trying to answer to, to you know, better control the population. Um, it's, it's tough though. I mean, there's a lot of snakes out there in South Florida, a lot of pythons. Um, and they're in areas that are highly inaccessible uh, to humans. So, you know, trying to figure out ways to, you know, curb the population growth of pythons in, in Everglades and South Florida, it's, it, it's tough. I mean, it's, it's really tough. Um, I don't know, you know, what we're going to do about it. Because <laughs> um, they're, they are really messing up the populations of small mammals of, of other organisms so um, birds wading birds um, you know it's 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 a mess it really is um, so yeah there's been some I did a little bit of work when I worked for um, the Army Corps of Engineers uh, I was working at their engineer research and development center and they had a drone program so we were trying to figure out some imaging techniques to be able to identify, you know, where the snakes were at um, using drones and satellite and, and stuff like that, um, radar and, and um, other visualization, uh, visualization techniques. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know where that research is at, but there, there was some, some promising stuff to where we could identify um snakes based on some imaging patterns uh so uh, we'll, we'll see where that goes then that could you know help to at least identify them and locate them on a broader you know scale um other than just driving on levees because you know that, that's really all we can do right now um you know there's a levee network you know throughout everglades and that's primarily where all the snakes are being collected you know, is where somebody can drive, yeah. which, you know, which, but compared to the land area that is inaccessible, that's not going to cut it for, for controlling these snakes, you know? Um, yeah. So, and it seems every year they're catching a bigger one with a bigger, bigger clutch, you know, yeah. more egg. it's just every year it's just like that. So yeah, it's a, it's an unfortunate situation. But, so we're studying uh like you know body conditions of the ones you found i keep on hearing had uh burmese pythons and everglades had like really high mercury and heavy metal contents is that just like you know general trophic buildups they seen in a lot of ecosystems or is it yeah um well they're particularly long-lived right and they eat a lot um and they're you know, bioaccumulating, you know, mercury, um, other heavy metals as well, I would imagine. Um, haven't seen the full um, ecotoxicology report on, on pythons, um, you know, the meat, um, but it's definitely not safe to eat um, by any means, uh, unless you want to take that risk. Um, and hey, I want to get superpowers. <laughs> right, 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 right. Or go crazy. One or the other, be like the Mad Hatter, you know? So. Um, sorry, my, my, my kitty is joining us for, for the talk. Say hi. Hi. Okay. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, same thing with the the iguanas in South Florida. Um, you know, they're trying to be able to market the meat because um, there's a lot of iguana um, eradication programs. There's a lot of businesses down here that do that. Um, so there's a lot of homeowners and uh, farmers, things like that, where they're, they're paying a lot of money to take out these iguanas, but then there's no, you know, legal market for them for the meat right now. Uh, so they're, they're making them into chum. They're doing some, they're using the, the, the animals as best they can, but um, you know, would be nice because there is a, a, a demand for iguana meat, um, you know, down here in South Florida, um, because from their native lands, they're, they're used as food very often. Um, they're called chicken of the trees, you know, so, yeah. or chicken in the forest. Um, so, um, yeah, it's just, you know, with all the pesticides and herbicides that could potentially be in that meat, you know, the FDA hasn't approved it for human consumption yet. So I think there were some studies currently going on with that too. Um, but yeah, same thing with the pythons. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. pythons are worse though, because they, they're, they're predators, they bioaccumulate, yeah. you know, and that's the thing you get a big animal that eats a decent amount of food uh they're gonna have high mercury you know especially everglades in general has it's a very large area and it gets a lot of natural mercury um you know deposition there um from from the air so uh you know that bioaccumulates very easily you know in, in predators so yeah because even alligators and, and other you know larger predators have pretty high mercury from south florida so it just depends on where you're at. Uh, yeah. yeah. So it's more like a South Florida thing just because of. Yeah. I mean, even it, mercury is kind of crazy, you know, because it, there's, you know, environmental deposition, you know, from the atmosphere and then that bioaccumulates. And then there's also, you know, legacy deposits and things like that, um, you know, through agriculture and, and industry. So, um, yeah, it, it's something that the state tests for every year. I know, um, puts out advisory, you know, um, advises on where to eat it, how much to eat um, from different animals. So um, I would pay attention to, to, you know, the warnings, you know, out there for consuming yeah. any of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So uh, what was some other research you've done with alligators? Um, so, uh, the critter cam study was pretty cool. Um, so this was part of my dissertation research as well. Uh, we partnered with National Geographic, um, critter cams, and I deployed these critter cams, which are, they're basically, you know, cameras, uh, but they have other sensors and other gadgets on them as well. Um, but we I designed a harness to mount those on the backs of alligators uh, to sort of get a point of view perspective of what the alligators were doing out in marine habitats in this case. And we actually we got some great footage. Um, I think we ended up with like over 100 hours of footage um, from I think like 15 or 16 alligators we deployed on. And we were able to uh, 
my primary focus was like, well, how often are they trying to eat stuff? How successful are they? Um, you know, what tactics they're using to, to attack prey in these environments. And, you know, we found some really cool evidence. I mean, it, it was uh, interesting. They were, I think it was like on average, they were trying to eat something like every, you know, three hours or something like that. They're actually trying to attack something. And then they're successful like 50% of the time, which is really high for any predator. Um, they even had higher rates in there like individuals did. Um, the way we ran the statistics, I think that was the average. It was like 50% of the time they were successful at, at catching whatever they, they attempted to, to eat. So when um, you think of like, you know, other animals that have that high of a success rate are things like pack animals, like wild dogs in Africa, you know, uh, even lions and, and cheetahs, they, they have like 10 to 20% success rate yeah. of when they try to attack something. So um, just goes to show you that they're, you know, the sit and wait, um, you know, strategy they have for, for attacking prey, uh, they're, they're very good at what they do. Um, they're very effective predators and, and that's, you know, one of the reasons, you know, probably the main reason they've been around for so long, you know, um, you know, you know, that lineage been around for millions of years. So, um, you know, it's really interesting to me trying to getting at, you know, more of the secret behavior because, you know, animals behave a lot differently when you're out there shining lights at them and, and, you know, in their face all the time. Um, then, when you get from their perspective with no humans around, you know, it, it gives you a different uh, view into their, their, the secret lives, you know, these animals have. Um, the critter cam program was great. You know, they really helped out. Um, it was basically like we rented the cameras from them and they entrusted us <laughs> to go deploy these, you know, really expensive uh, developed units on, on alligators and, and then return the cameras to them in one piece. So, um, you know, that was always, always a little, a little dicey, but it was fun. It was fun. Um, you know, there's, uh, haven't done much else. Um, you know, we did some further diet studies. Um, I also looked at, uh, went from coastal environments into uh, spring systems in Florida. So these natural um, spring fed rivers because uh, they're um, or 50s or 70s on uh, in those ecosystems. So I, you know, studied food web ecology, you know, and alligators being at the top of that food web uh, in those systems. Um, but using stabilized soaps and some contents were the same thing that I was doing with alligators, just applied it to a whole food web um, to better understand what's going on in those environments. Uh, so that, that research still mainly unpublished. I mean, we published reports and things like that, but um, yeah, it's still going a little bit. And I got to get back to that at some point. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I've done a little side projects here and there and stuff, but yeah, yeah, that's the, the bulk of it though. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. that whole, you know, diff- obvious difference of behavior, of uh, an animal when you're not observing it versus when you're shining a flashlight in it is like, 
It's kind of like Hollywood celebrities whenever there's camera yeah. in front of them. <laughs> right, right, right. They're camera shy, you know. And a lot of times, I mean, in a lot of these crime More like they just show what a real predator they are when the camera's not flashing on them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, some don't care, you know. You'll see them <laughs> out there doing their thing nonetheless, but. Yeah, George Clooney. Um, <laughs> right, right. But, um, you know, even in some of these populations of like, like American crocodiles, for example, you know, they've been doing these monitoring studies for so many years, running similar transects, uh, going to the same areas. They get really shy. So we don't know if the numbers that we're seeing are truly representative of what's actually out there. Um, because, you know, as soon as they hear a certain boat or see a light, they go down and they don't come up. And if you're trying to do spot eye shine counts, you know, it, it could potentially, you know, mess up the data a little bit. So, um, you know, so there, there's something to be said for like camera trap, you know, work and, and you know, animal born imaging. It's, it's a big field that started, that's uh, elucidated a lot of uh, behaviors and activities that you would never see otherwise, you know. Um, yeah, pretty interesting. So, so how did you mount the cameras uh, to the animals? Um, so I just designed this. It was a single strap, uh, and it kind of went behind the head, and it held the camera on the front. And it was on a, it was a cradle basically. It had these two little bolts that came up. The little strap fit right down in between the two bolts, and then went under the chest and crossed in the front and then behind the arms and it all looped into um one zip tie that was held on the bottom of the cradle unit um and basically so nothing was actually attached it was like a, a book bag you know like a like a yeah you know just like straps being held on and at a predetermined time there was a little, it, I mean, this was like James Bond stuff. So there was this little mechanism on the camera that uh, would shoot. Uh, it's called an actuator and it had a little black powder in it. You get an electrical signal from the camera unit and fire the black powder. So it would explode and shoot a piston into a little blade that cut the zip tie. So it was literally like some James Bond, you know, or like, like some spy stuff, you know, or something that, um, you know, it would detach and then the whole unit floated. So that would just float up, you know, and nothing would be left on the animal. Um, there were also safety mechanisms built in, uh, little links that eroded through time. So, you know, and there were weak points too. It was only a little, little tiny 50 pound zip tie like you know so we had a couple that broke off a little early things like that but um pretty successful with that method and i've used that method again uh, when we shot uh we shot an episode for national geographic uh the croc that ate jaws uh it was yeah it was last year it came out um and we deployed critter cams again on alligators out in um, salt marshes in um, southwest Florida and uh, trying to record uh, some interactions between sharks and alligators um, in that area. Um, 
and we had success with that those deployments as well. So um, it's a good method. You know, it's fairly easy, fairly straightforward, cheap. You know, literally one cotton strap with a couple of you know zip ties and stuff. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, the guys at the uh, St. Augustine Alligator Farm let me try out all these methods on some of their animals. You know, to kind of perfect the you know develop the the harness system um so that was nice you know having that connection there so yeah 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 um what are some uh what are some studies you are looking forward or hoping to do sometime in the future um so um I would like to expand on some of the interaction, um, ecological interaction studies that I've done. Um, looking more on like landscape scale, you know, things, you know, what effect are alligators having, you know, in, in different environments? Um, and what happens if we could like, you know, exclude them from certain areas in time and actually measure these effects out in, in the environment. You know, these are kind of like large scale studies. Um, uh, so, uh, so I think that they're very important and they're, it's just not been shown. There's a lot of inferred, you know, information out there. They're like, oh yeah, alligators are keystone species for this reason and that reason, but there's no studies to, to back up you know, what's been said, um, or there's very few, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence. Um, so, you know, that sort of thing, or, or doing some management to where we could, you know, in certain areas, you know, cull certain age classes or, or just do some different things, um, kind of look at that. Um, as well, I think there, there still should, could be more work done on on just their use of marine habitats and, and how they're um, doing that. Um, some physiological studies, um, there is some evidence that uh, certain coastal populations of alligators can actually tell the difference uh, between salt and freshwater, where freshwater, uh, you know, originating alligators couldn't tell the difference. Um, so, you know, is there some physiological changes happening too in these populations um, where they can better deal uh, with the environmental um, conditions there. Um, so there's kind of like a wide open, you know, um, areas to study still. Uh, you know, um, went for a job for uh, Louisiana state biologists for alligators, so that just came open. Um, if I get that job, there'll, there'll, there'll be a lot of research being done. Um, but, uh, you know, there's some other focus areas that are important for industry, um, and things like that, you know, cause there's a big, you know, alligator harvest industry there, farming and harvesting. Um, I'm really wide open to, to any aspects of it. Um, <laughs> really, I just, I, I, you know, I, I, fell in love with alligators when I was like 15 years old when I first went out uh, on a hunt with them. And, and ever since then, I've just wanted to find out more and more and more. So, you know, any aspect of, you know, understanding them more and, you know, showing their importance both ecology wise and um, just, you know, 
their existence um, is what I'm interested in. So, um, you know, it can be kind of wide open in, in that sense, though. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but speaking of St. Augustine, uh, are you going to Crockfest this year? Yeah. Yeah. I'll be there next week. Yeah. Same here. All right. Cool. Cool. So we'll see you there then. Yeah. yeah for sure. For sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm only three hours away. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I try to make it up there. It's also the alumni meeting for the Croc School. Um, you know, I think it's like 20 years uh, for, for Croc School has been going. So, um, I used to be uh, an instructor and I was an alumni, you know, from, from Croc School. So, um, be good to see everybody there. And, uh, and it's always a fun time, um, you know, getting a bunch of crocodilian folks together. Uh, yeah. It's always a good time. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so you mentioned you did research with, you know, uh, spring fed river populations versus maritime. Uh, so where is like some of the differences you notice between the two populations? Um, well, the springs, uh, they're really cool systems in general. You know, there's constant temperature, uh, it's like 72 degree water year round. Um, I was studying in this first magnitude spring system, silver river, uh, or silver springs. It's actually where they filmed the creature from Black Lagoon. They filmed Tarzan there. Um, it's a really iconic um, system in Central Florida. Um, you know, there, there's not a ton of alligators there. Uh, I'd say, like behavior-wise, I mean, they're not doing much different. They're they're eating similar stuff: uh, small fish, uh, crustacean, you know. Uh, crayfish, um, turtles, birds, uh, occasionally, um, you know, the, the main thing that they're not doing is, you know, making that cross ecosystem link. So they're just staying in the river. Um, they do a lot of, you know, bait sunbathing to warm up because it's 72 degrees year round. So they got to be out of the water a little bit. Um, you know, they weren't the primary focus of that study. Um, they were just another predator in the system. Um, but the way they were coming out, like in the food web, was sort of as uh, very low on the trophic levels um, compared to, let's say, like a big, like a bass or a gar or these big predatory fish. Um, so you could see that they're mainly eating you know, again, smaller animals for, for the most part, um, things like, um, you know, the juveniles are eating, you know, small, uh, arthropods, insects and things like that. And, and then the larger ones were eating, you know, crayfish and, and on up to, you know, some turtles, things like that, but in the occasional bird mammal, but, um, yeah, it, it, it would, like I said, they weren't the primary focus of that study. So, um, but it was good because nobody had ever studied them in springs before. Um, so it kind of gave some of the first uh, research done on them in those areas. Um, yeah. But it's pretty cool when you're in that crystal clear water and you see these alligators doing their thing. Um, it, it's pretty amazing. You can, you can really see what they're up to. Yeah. Yeah. Gives for some really nice pictures and things. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, uh, are there any uh, other species of crocodilian you want to work on? 
Oh, I mean, I would love to work on pretty much any, all of them, you know. Um, I have a lot of colleagues that work uh, in Africa and in um, Central America. Of course, I would love to work with, with some salties over in Australia or Indonesia um, or in the Pacific area. Uh, there's also, I mean, because a lot of, again, crocodilians in general, there's not been a lot of, large-scale ecological studies done on because they're hard to study um, from an ecological point of view um, and they're very hard you know to understand how they fit into the different food webs so um, I'd be interested in, in studying any of them um, to tell you the truth but um, you know I've worked with black caiman in the wild you know I've worked with you know, alligators uh, American crocodiles uh, a good bit um, so I, I would love to, you know, get my hands on all of them <laughs> if I could. Yeah. Um, definitely, definitely. Gotta catch them all. Uh, yeah, yeah, go catch them all. Um, but, you know, with, with uh, intent at understanding some, you know, ecology of, of these organisms, because I think they're very um, misunderstood in a lot of places and, and overlooked as their importance. So um, and, and I think understanding more, about how they interact in the environment is going to, you know, increase their conservation and, um, you know, benefit, you know, all around, you know, to keep them, keep them here. You know, that's the main thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, uh, because you've done research with, you know, animal South Florida, specifically invasives. Mm -hmm. uh, what I want to talk about is one, having really, you don't hear them out as much as Burmese pythons, obviously, but uh spectacle came in. I keep hearing, Stories about speckled caimans being yeah have established populations down South Florida. Yeah, they've been here since I think the 40s or 50s. Um, fairly well established population. Um, you see them occasionally. I mean, there there's certain areas in the Everglades where they're they're more well established. I don't think they're problematic. You know, there, there's not that many of them. Um, they're very similar, you know, ecology wise to alligators that are there. Um, versus a Burmese know, python, which is a snake nowhere right close to anything else, any other snake has ever been in Florida. Yeah. And, and you just don't see the numbers, you know, that you do of these Burmese pythons. Like, you know, you'll see a couple small populations of, of amen and then, you know, there's collectors that come get them that know where they're at for the pet industry. Um, there's, you know, you know, I just don't think that they're going to be an issue. Um, there's not that many of them, um, you know, and, and there are, you know, if FWC finds them or the park finds them or um, some others, you know, they collect them and euthanize them. So I don't think they're, they're going to take off in population and, and things like that, you know, they're, they'll probably persist. They'll be around, but um, you're probably not going to get every one of them out. But um, as far as being like invasive, I don't don't find that you know evidence that, like the negative ecological effects or, or economic effects that you associate with a invasive animal. Um, there's a big big difference, a big debate too. Um, between you know labeling something as invasive um 
and having the evidence to show that it actually is, you know, has a negative effect ecologically or economically or human health um, wise versus just an exotic animal that's not native to the area um, that is doing pretty much absolutely nothing in terms of the ecology or, or, or things like that. Um, you know, the other problem with the Burmese pythons and, and some of these exotics um, that, that could turn them into invasive is, you know, parasites and um, disease as well. So, um, you know, it's been shown there, there are certain parasites that the pythons brought um, into that environment and, and some diseases that could potentially spread because of them. So, um so it's not only you know what they're doing as an organism out there, but you know what they're carrying with them too. So um, yeah, but as far as the caiman go, there, I mean, there's also been you know a couple Nile crocodiles caught in South Florida. There's been some uh, dwarf caimans caught. You know, a lot of these are um, not established populations, just you know one-offs um, get released out there um or get out of their enclosure somewhere yeah and uh but you know the caimans you know they came from when they were selling caiman out of the back of magazines you know and comic books and stuff you know you could order a caiman for like uh, i forgot what it was it's like like under a dollar or something like that <laughs> and, and, get one, and, and get one shipped to you you know out of the back of a magazine <laughs> so yeah um you know, that's when those those really came from um, and they've just persisted, you know, so I don't think they're an issue though. Yeah. yeah. I mean, out of all the crocodilians, it makes sense that the like, speckled caiman is the one that's able to establish invasive populations. <laughs> they're hardy, man. And they're, they're, they're wild too. Yeah. They, they are, they're, they're fun to catch. I mean, they're, they're definitely, a, a different beast than alligator. Um, they got a little attitude on them for sure. So, um, I mean, they're very, very athletic um, as far as <laughs> when you're capturing them. They can spin on a dime, you know, and just, you know, you think you're going after the head and then, or going after the tail, and then the, the head's there, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, they're, they're fun, though. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, is there uh, anything else you want to talk about? Um, no, no, you know, I'm, uh, you know, like I said, currently I don't have a lot going as far as uh, primary research or anything. Um, I'm looking to get back into it, kind of in between some jobs. So, um, you know, just staying active. Uh, I'm, I'm active within the uh, crocodilian specialist group for the IUCN. So, um, you know, we maintain some responsibilities through that and. You know, I, I help out other researchers as they need it, you know, with direction or, or help them out in the field. So, um, yeah, I'm excited to get back into it, you know, more, you know, head on here soon. But, um, yeah, but I, I appreciate you having me on the, the, the podcast here. And, uh, yeah, yeah. So Thanks for coming on. All right. All right. Well, um, we'll see you at CrocFest next week then. Hopefully. All right. All right. All right. Well, sounds good, man. All right. See you then. All right.